Good morning. My name is Wes, one of the pastors here. Uh, excited to be with you and do what we do now. Each Sunday, we're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app, some way to access the Scriptures. There's even a Bible uh, under the seat in front of you. If you could turn to our passage in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 26, beginning today at verse 31. And when you found that, if you're able, if you could stand together with me for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 26, it's the first book of the New Testament, starting at verse 31 of chapter 26. <clears throat> if you were with us last week, you'll know that disciples have just headed out here from the Last Supper, and we learn in verse 30 that they sung a hymn as they're headed towards the Mount of Olives. And now Matthew tells us this, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter, of course, uh, of course Peter, replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here with me and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My father... If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he returned to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, May your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived with him, a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, we ask now that you would illumine the preaching of your word. Open our eyes and hearts and minds. Remove any hindrance to what it is that you want to accomplish through your word in this gathering of your people today. You promise us in your word when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It does accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Well, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, 
Would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, I can still remember that moment at the dinner table like it was yesterday. Um, my father had taken a phone call during dinner, which was very uncharacteristic. We had a strict, we do not answer the phone during dinner policy in our house. So this was weird. But dad was expecting this call, and so you know, he suspended the rule for this moment, for this important occasion. For you see, our dear friend and former pastor, Dave Martinen, actually the friend who spoke at our church retreat this uh, last winter, he was calling, having just lost his firstborn son. He was killed in a car accident while out delivering newspapers on his bike. And he was asking my dad to help with his memorial service. We heard dad, he mumbled a few short answers, kind of, mm-hmm, yep. Before doing something even more characteristic, which none of us expected, dad's voice cracked as he affirmed his willingness to help, and then tears began to fill his eyes. Now, in order to get the full impact of this, you need to understand that as kids, we had never seen our dad cry before. And I don't know, maybe you can identify with this too. Um, we kind of liked that, we, that we were just fine with that. Actually, it created a sense of really kind of stability and security for us, that no matter what else was going on, no matter how much anyone else was crashing or falling apart, we could rely on dad to be the cool, calm, collected, unemotional one. So as you can imagine, this was quite disruptive to my whatever it was, 12 or 13 year old world at the time. Um, I didn't know what to do with what I was witnessing. And, and may have even, there may be a part of me that, that wanted him to stop it. To, to pull himself together again so that I could return to that feeling of security again. It wasn't until years later when I became a father myself that I really came to understand the consequence of that moment for my dad as he you know, was trying to comfort a friend experiencing one of the worst things any parent can experience. Which I think that that feeling of great kind of discomfort, disorientation at the emotion of my father, I think is exactly what Jesus' disciples, particularly Peter, James, and John, would have likely been feeling in this moment described in our passage today. I mean, Jesus, is he saying all this weird and scary stuff? Someone's going to betray me. You're all going to fall away. And he's acting in weird and, and scary or just unfamiliar ways as he reveals the true depth of his sorrow at all he's about to experience in this intensely vulnerable moment that he's sharing with them. I think his disciples, they didn't know what to do with what they were witnessing. It's like, what happened to the guy we, we've been following these three years? And I'll try to unpack that a little more deeply as we go this morning, but I don't know. I think the reality is, I think to a large degree, we understand their confused response already, don't we? How? Well, because I think that's almost exactly how the majority of us respond to this part of Jesus' life story from our passage today as well. I think, you know what, if you grew up in church, maybe you've seen movies about Jesus' life, we all know this is part of the story. This is part of it, right? Jesus, uh, uh, he's overwhelmed with sorrow, so overwhelmed, Luke's gospel tells us that he's sweating blood, 
a pleading with the Father in, his gar- in the garden earnestly that this cup, whatever that is, would be taken away from him. We all know that's part of the story. But I think we, we don't really know what to do with what we're reading about Jesus. We're watching it kind of like, Who, who's this? And, and may even want Jesus to stop it. Just kind of snap out of it. Go, go back to being that strong capable leader that that we've been reading about this whole time so that we can return to our sense of security with him. And while there might be other reasons, I think the reason Jesus' revelation of his sorrow is so disruptive to us and so disorienting to our stability with him is twofold. First of all, on the one hand, we don't know what to do with Jesus' revelation because we don't understand the fullness of the cup that Jesus is asking the Father to take away from him. I think many times we think maybe Jesus is just really, really scared of dying and and not realizing that the cup, like what that means, and his sorrow over drinking it is so much more than that. Secondly, I think we don't know what to do with Jesus' revelation because we don't understand the meaning of Jesus revealing the fullness of his sorrow here. Like, like why, why would he choose this moment and with these three friends in particular to, to reveal this depth of sorrow? We, we don't understand. So in order to kind of, I, mean, I guess, hope, I want to try to help decode those two mysteries for us this morning so that our response to Jesus' revelation, when we read this now, anytime going forward, our response to that revelation might be transformed from, from anxiety into awe, from, from worry into worship. That's my hope this morning. And so in order to help us do that, I want to look at the passage together with you in just two ways. We're going to talk about the consequence of the cup and then the design of the disclosure. Consequence of the cup, design of the disclosure. Just those two things. So if you close your Bibles, Bible app, whatever you're using, could you open it again with me to that passage? Follow along with me as we dig into this together. Okay, so let's look first of all at the consequence of the cup. The consequence of the cup. Look with me first of all at verse 36 of our passage. Jesus and his disciples, they arrive at the Mount of Olives to this specific part of the garden called Gethsemane, which apparently that name means oil press. So telling us that this is a garden area among the olive groves where olive oil is produced. I don't think we need to try to seek out any mysterious a hidden uh, meaning or symbolic meaning in, yet, in that, and yet I don't think it's insignificant either that the place where Jesus takes his disciples to pray just before his arrest is a place where olives are crushed in order to bring forth their life-giving oil within. Jesus asks them all to sit with him while he goes away a little bit further and to pray. And then, as we see in verse 37, he doesn't go away by himself. He brings three friends. He brings Peter, James and John, those are the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. He brings these three friends along with him. And then it's now, in the second half of verse 37, we see Jesus. He's almost like pulling back the veil, as it were, for his three closest friends. And as the NIV translates it, he becomes sorrowful and troubled, which, as a number of commentators pointed out, feels almost like too tame a translation of those words. Because when you understand the fullness of what's going on, uh, things like, words like emotional anguish, 
deep distress better picture the emotional anxiety of all that Jesus is experiencing right now, the real intensity of all this. And we know that because as you see in Jesus' words to his disciples now in verse 38, he says he doesn't just feel sad, he's not just sorrowful, but feels overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's saying, I, I feel, this weight of this feels so incredibly heavy, it feels like it's going to crush me. He tells his disciples, stay here, keep watch with me. And then going a little further, he falls on his face to the ground before the Father in heaven, pleading with him three times that this cup would be taken away from him. Which leads us now, okay, so now let's dig into this. What, what is this cup that Jesus is asking to be taken away? What's the consequence of this that feels so overwhelming for him? What is it about the cup that so overwhelms Jesus that he sweats drops of blood at the thought of drinking it? As I said earlier, for, for many, myself included, for many years, we, we read this and we assume the cup represents this, this torturous death that Jesus knows he's about to experience, along with all the other things that come along with it, the, 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 the sorrow, the, the abandonment, the, the spitting and slapping and whipping and beating Jesus will experience. Not to mention the, the mockery and humiliation he'll experience as the king of the universe is crowned in false worship with a crown of thorns and then stripped naked and nailed to a cross for all to look upon. It's horrific what Jesus is about to experience at the hands of the religious rulers and then the Romans and in his humanity, he's rightly terrified. And yet what we along with critics of the Christian faith who kind of malign the apparent lack of stoicism and courage which, which, with which the founder of the Christian faith seems to approach his death. What we miss when we see it that way is that the physical and emotional suffering that Jesus knows he will experience in his crucifixion, that's nothing. That is Nothing compared to the spiritual anguish Jesus knows he will experience as the sinless Son of God takes the sins of the world upon himself and then receives and bears the full weight of God's wrath against that sin in his body on our behalf. That's what's in the cup. That's what so overwhelms Jesus in this moment that his knees buckle and he falls to the ground and pleads with the Father, if there's any other way we can do this, if there's any other way we can accomplish this rescue mission, take this cup away from me. And yet, as we see, with every pleading request, remain submissive to the will of his Father. Not as I will, but you will, but your will be done. And I think understanding that, okay, seeing the true consequence of the cup for Jesus, man, that it easily explains the mystery of Jesus becoming overwhelmed with sorrow in this moment. At this point of death, in this moment, it's obvious why Jesus would be feeling this way. No one has ever faced a death like this before. And so just as Jesus' suffering is unique, so too is his anguish. So we see this and we understand now why he's breaking down. We understand why he's becoming emotionally undone. Just as becoming a father, the thought of losing my own kids helped me now understand 
the sadness of my father and that uncharacteristic phone call during dinner. We, we get it now. And then I think out from that understanding, like knowing all of that that was in that cup and understanding what Jesus' willing submission to the Father in drinking that cup will accomplish for us, namely uh, the forgiveness of our sins, a, a reconciled relationship with God, full citizenship in the kingdom. When we understand that, I think now stability is actually created for us rather than lost in any way. Uh, security. We, we experience it now in watching him suffer and break down this way, in, rather than losing it, as we witness the profound depths to which our God would go in order to restore us back to himself. Now we get it. And yet as we see in our passage, these gifts of stability and security, they were actually lost to Jesus' disciples in this moment. They didn't gain them. Why? Because rather than being curious about Jesus' uncharacteristic behavior, rather than being willing to stand alongside with him, press in with him in this hour of deepest distress, instead they responded like so many of us do. Whenever the emotions or the distress of others make us feel uncomfortable, unsafe, they said nothing. They, they pulled back, withdrew, and simply observed from a distance. And I know it's, it's literally an argument from silence. I know that. And yet, I think it's very telling. This whole time we've been walking through this passion with Jesus, last supper, someone's going to betray me. Everyone's, oh no, is it me, God? Is it me? Uh, um, um, Everyone's going to fall away. I won't do that. No, everyone's saying the same thing. I find it very telling that the moment Jesus reveals the depth of his sorrow to his disciples, all of a sudden, we don't hear a word from them. And it's not the main point of this passage. I know it's not. But I think there's something really important for us to learn from that as it relates to how we love and engage and care for one another or not. When someone is in the midst of distress, someone is experiencing big emotions, struggling with depression, anxiety, the weight of something that they're carrying, I think far too often we go silent too. We, we pull away and withdraw from people just like Jesus' disciples did. And as a result, we miss out on some of the same security and stability that we might otherwise have been able to enjoy and, and offer to people if we had simply been willing to offer the gift of presence. Okay, so that's the consequence of the cup. Last thing I want to look at together with you is the design of the disclosure. The design of the disclosure, and I want to look at this with you because although we have clarity now as to like why Jesus is so overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, what we don't yet understand is Jesus, like, why is Jesus revealing the depth of his sorrow to his disciples here? Right? Why now? Why at this moment and to these three close friends in particular is this happening? We're, we're going to deal with the question of why Peter, James, and John in particular in closing. But for the moment, I want to deal with the question of timing. Why, why here? 
And we need to understand this timing of Jesus' revelation because I don't know if it's ever stood out to you at the same time before when you were reading this as well, but doesn't Jesus' emotional breakdown or whatever is happening here seem to come out of nowhere? He's been, like, he's fine the whole time. He's leading, capable. All of a sudden now, breaking down in tears, falling to the ground. Like, it feels like this is out of nowhere. What? What's happening? Why? Why is this happening now? I mean, I suppose you could say that the last three years of public ministry with his disciples have been like climbing a diving tower, and he's getting further and further to the top, and then the last supper that he just shared with his disciples, he was walking to the edge of the platform, and now looking down at, at the, the heights from which he's standing, the depth to which he's going to have to descend, Jesus' knees buckle in terror at the fullness of what he's looking at. Maybe. And yet, given the level of self-awareness that Jesus has demonstrated throughout his earthly ministry about the purpose for his coming, namely to give his life as a ransom for many, it seems unlikely. It seems unlikely that the fullness of everything Jesus was about to experience just suddenly happened to dawn on him in this moment. Just like, what, that's tomorrow? Probably not. The reality is that Jesus... The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was aware of the fullness of what was coming and what his coming would involve before he even showed up on the scene that starry night in Bethlehem. He knew what he was coming to face. So again, okay, fine, but then why here? Why here and now at this point in the story does Jesus, does Jesus choose to reveal what he's been feeling about this and everything he has to face the whole time? Why does he choose now? And the answer, I believe, is found beginning with Jesus' sobering warning back in verse 31. Look with me there. He tells his disciples, this very night they will all fall away, which, of course, they all deny vehemently, especially Peter, passionately. Even if I have to die with you, I would never disown you. They all say the same thing. But Then look, we need to follow the events of what happens now closely to really get this. So follow this. What happens? Jesus takes his disciples to this particular place on the Mount of Olives, Gethsemane. He tells them, wait here and pray. I'm going over there. Then he takes Peter, James, and John. That's his inner circle of friends. He takes them a little bit further into the garden, reveals the true depth of his struggle, everything that he's going to know he's going to face. Lastly, he falls on his face before his father in prayer, desperate desperate in prayer as he wrestles with what he knows to be the will of his Father for him and his very human desire not to experience any of that. that that's, that's what happens in the story, correct? Those are the, the details. But in the midst of those three prayers that Jesus prays, what happens? He comes back each time after praying. And by the way, I thought I should mention this. It feels weird that it goes so quickly, like Jesus prays a prayer that might have taken 10 seconds and then comes back and somehow the disciples have fallen asleep in that time. It was a longer time. Matthew is, is summarizing Jesus' time in prayer, okay? So there was time. But each time he comes back and finds his friends not keeping watch but sleeping, right? They're asleep. And I want to be fair to the disciples. I mean, this is late at night. We don't know how late, but it's late at night. Um, if you were counting last week as we described the celebration of Passover, they've, they've drank four separate glasses of wine as a part of the Passover celebration. I, I can't think of any time I've 
gone out to dinner and had four glasses of wine, but if I did, I can guarantee, first of all, I'd be taking an Uber home. Secondly, I'd probably be asleep by the time I got there. So, I mean, let's, let's give them some grace here. But what happens here now? They, they, they look at verse 38, the second half here. Jesus goes a little way off from Peter, James, and John. And as he goes to pray, his instructions to them are what? Stay here and keep watch with me. Keep watch. There's an action they're supposed to accomplish. Keep watch with me as I'm doing this. Not chill over there, catch up on your Instagram likes. I'm going to go over here. I'll see you in a bit. Stay awake. Keep watch with me. Which is why each time Jesus returns and finds them sleeping, he's so frustrated with them. Right there in verse 40, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? Why? Why? Well, because what they were supposed to be doing, what they needed to be doing in this moment, actually was staying awake and being in prayer themselves. Jesus goes on to say to them in verse 41, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The question you need to answer there as it relates to Jesus' rebuke is, okay, uh, falling into temptation to what? The, the spirit is willing to what? Uh, stay awake? Is Jesus kind of rebuking the disciples because they don't have the, the fortitude to just stay up all night with him? I mean, you guys, come on. You need to up your game here and be able to do an all-night prayer vigil with me. Is that, is that what he's doing? Or, and I'll tip my hand, I think this is the answer, is the temptation Jesus is actually telling his disciples to watch and pray so that they won't fall victim to the temptation to fall away, which he just finished warning them about on his walk over to the Mount of Olives. Because if it's that, okay, now then that in and of itself reveals the reason for Jesus' timing. Why here and now is the place that Jesus chooses to reveal the depth of his sorrow, of everything that he knows he's about to face, being obedient to the Father's will. Because in so doing, what Jesus is doing, he's revealing both the reality of his struggle. He's saying, look, I'm really feeling, experiencing this struggle and how to respond in circumstances like these themselves that they will invariably come to face in their own lives and that they're about to face any moment. Jesus is saying, I I just told you there's like a literal tidal wave Coming, that's going to sweep you away. What you need to be doing right now is sandbagging, not sleeping. Building up through prayer the, the supports that are going to en- enable you to withstand that wave. Not just chilling and taking it easy. Jesus is showing his disciples obedience to the Father's will is actually hard. You know, they all come up with this bravado. I would never... He's saying, obedience to the Father's will is hard. He's saying, actually, he's, he's freaking out right now. Surrendering to the Father's will is the hardest thing he's ever had to do. He's not sure if he'll have the strength to go through with it, and that actually his temptation right now is not to. He's revealing all of that to them in this revelation of the depth of his sorrow. And how to respond in moments like this as the children of God, namely, prayer, connection, 
leaning into our relationship with the Father that everything Jesus is about to endure on the cross will make possible. And we know that's what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, and by extension, every follower of his since Gethsemane, because through this real-life, kind of real-time, enacted parable that is actually Jesus' real-time life, because of the results, the results that emerge from their two approaches to facing temptation, leaning into relationship with God in the midst of our temptation through prayer and sleeping on it. We see the results of the two approaches to temptation. I mean, it's too bad we didn't go into it and read the rest of the passage. But as you read on, what you see, Judas comes, right, with this band of soldiers to come and arrest Jesus, to strike the shepherd. And where Jesus is enabled to respond with calm confidence in the Father's sovereign providence and care over every troubling detail he's about to face, right? Peter pulls out his sword to start attacking Jesus. like, put that away. Don't you know that if I needed to, I could call a legion of angels to come and rescue me? He's got a whole different approach now to what he's about to endure. Whereas the disciples can only respond with fear, a show of like pathetic force, and then ultimately fleeing, just as Jesus had warned them that they all would. Those are the results of those two approaches to temptation. But do you see it? Look, in in giving this kind of insider view into his own process, whenever the weight of all that the Father's will uh, required of him, overwhelmed him with sorrow, caused him to feel like giving into the temptation to give up and fall away. Jesus was revealing the way to overcome the weakness of our flesh and stand firm in the midst of our temptations. Which, man, I get it, okay? I, I know. This sounds like such a churchy, uh, simplistic answer to many of the truly complex overwhelming circumstances that I know many of you are facing today. Hey, just, just pray about it. You know? Mm-hmm. Just give it to Jesus. But that's not what I'm saying. Okay. Hopefully you can see, even in Jesus' example, in the midst of his overwhelming sorrow, first of all, far from just simplistic prayer, just kind of a, hey, Jesus, take the wheel. You can see this is deep. This is wrestling, ugly cry, in the dirt, prayer with God. That, that's what Jesus is demonstrating here. Kind of like Jacob wrestling with the angel in the desert, where, where you're pouring out everything, holding nothing back. You're bringing your, your hurts, your fears, your doubts, your anger to God, even as you're just struggling with everything you have to continue to submit your will to his. Hey, this is not simple, just give it to Jesus. This is deep passionate wrestling prayer. Secondly, neither is this genie in a bottle prayer. We just rub the lamp in the right way, rub it hard enough or whatever, and then all our trials and temptations just go away. Right? Because you notice, not one thing, not a single thing changed about Jesus' circumstances after going to his Father in prayer. Nothing changed. The only thing that changed was his perspective on the sorrowful circumstances he was about to face that then enabled him to overcome the temptation to, follow, to fall away and, and remain obedient to his Father's will. I think what we're being shown in our passage today is that very same thing will be true for us whenever we follow Jesus' example in the midst of our own trials and temptations. That's where we can truly find the security and the stability again and overcome the weakness of our flesh 
which just wants to be like, man, I want to get out of here. Get me out of here. We're enabled to remain faithful and follow through. But one last thing I want to show you as it relates to the design of Jesus' disclosure, and we're going to look at this in closing, is why I believe it was Peter, James, and John in particular that Jesus chose to reveal the depth of his sorrow to. Why these guys? And I've been hinting at what I believe the answer is to that question this whole time in the title of this message, which I don't know if you noticed or maybe you thought there was some kind of a clerical error of some kind because maybe you know already the Mount of Transfiguration, that's something that happens weeks earlier in the story, back in Matthew 17 actually, where Jesus had taken these same three disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain, and there, Matthew tells us, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. It was this incredible, epic scene where they see Jesus' divinity clearly revealed in 4K as Moses and Elijah, and even the voice of the Father himself are there all affirming Jesus' deity as the Son of God. But what stood out to me this week in my study of this passage, which I don't think I've ever seen it this way or thought of it before, is how Jesus' revelation of the fullness of who he was on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17 is actually no less important than his revelation to these same three disciples of the fullness of who he is on the Mount of Olives. It's just to say Jesus is transfigured as well on the Mount of Olives, just as radically he was on that first Mount of Transfiguration. The only difference is that what is revealed in Jesus' transfiguration this time is not his true divinity, but true humanity. He's revealing the fullness of who he is as well. That what the Apostle John writes in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2 about God, Jesus, though he was in the very nature of God, became an equal with God. He didn't see equality with God, something to be grasped. He made himself nothing taking on the very nature of a servant and being found in human likeness, that those aren't just nice poetic sentiments, but profound realities that we'll spend all eternity trying to touch the bottom of. That's somehow, in a way that we can't fathom, but are no less real in the very sense of the word, Jesus was and remains both fully God and fully man at the same time. That's the fullness of who Jesus is. As the author of Hebrews describes the humanity of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity in Hebrews 2, writing this, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, this is Jesus, in every way. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he's able to help those who are being tested. You see the fullness now of Jesus' purpose in revealing this area of suffering for Peter, James, and John in particular, as well as for you and for me in this second transfiguration on the Mount of Olives. First transfiguration shows us that as the perfect Son of God, Jesus' sacrifice for the sins of the world is sufficient. The second transfiguration shows us that Jesus, as the Son of Man, his sacrifice for the world was truly offered. Rather than any kind of just feigned suffering, a divine indifference to temptation, the God of the universe 
truly took on human flesh and experienced it in all its frailty, in all the same weaknesses that you and I experience in our own ways, and then offered up that flesh for us and for our salvation on the cross. This means a beautiful part of Jesus' second transfiguration that continues to bear fruit and that will support you and me as followers of his right up until this very day is that on those days, on those weeks, on those months, sometimes those years where we're freaking out, where we feel overwhelmed with sorrow by the path that we feel like we've been called to walk, feels like obedience to God in that moment feels like one of the hardest things you've ever had to do, and you don't feel like you've got the strength to follow through. And your temptation, the overwhelming temptation in that moment is not to. Jesus gets it. He understands perfectly in those moments. He's experienced those very same things, not by divine omniscience, but because he's lived them firsthand. However overwhelming the sorrow, the suffering, the temptation, he, Jesus can say to you in this moment, in this day, I know. Oh man, I know. I know how hard it is. But then more than just empathy, right? Jesus provides an example of the way to stand firm in the midst of that overwhelming sorrow, as well as providing a means of access to the Father through his obedience to the Father's will on our behalf. He now makes a way for that access for every single one of us to follow his example at any moment when we need it. As the author of Hebrews so powerfully summarizes Jesus' ongoing work for every follower of his right up until this day, regardless of whatever it is, whatever overwhelming sorrow you might be facing today. And I'll close with this. He writes, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. May we not fall away. May we not give up. Why? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are, yet without sin. To let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let's follow Jesus' example in Gethsemane. Let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in every time of need. Amen. God, give us the wisdom and the courage and the faith to follow this example.